what you're really telling me is, I just want to tell you all the ways that this won't work, or all the things wrong with it, because that's what lawyers are really good at and get paid for. When judging yourself or looking at your own life, it's a very, very ineffective way to, to move forward. This is part two of my conversation with Derek Lacroix, the executive director of the Lawyers Assistance Program of British Columbia. Enjoy. Just looking at the individual, I know you see a lot of lawyers. What are some of the things that you're seeing that your your clients are doing that um, are helping them overcome these problems that we've identified, where they've they're becoming more thriving lawyers? Well, one of the key things that that I I do working with them is and, and it'll be meditation, but it's also it would call fall under the rub I guess the general rubric of cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, the 12 steps do this. There's a variety of things where getting control of their thinking mm-hmm. so it doesn't run away with them and they're not, mm-hmm. you know, control the obsessive thinking and examine their their beliefs because there's a lot of people with mistaken beliefs or old beliefs that need to be updated, shall we say, uh, yeah. about themselves and their own. You know, there's a tremendous, now the phrase, um, posture syndrome starting to come out and really when, when I see it there's a lot of the clients I see who just they know you know they've achieved a lot but they don't they still think they're not good enough right and as if they were good enough they wouldn't feel, whatever it is you can just fill in something and right. always their mind is always going to find something negative and in, in the cognitive behavioral field they call it cognitive distortions right yeah. where you have, and we all do it, oh, every one of us, right? Yeah. And um, but would they call out what you just talked about, just focusing on the negative? Yeah. You know, you could have a hundred positive things, but one thing, let's say you had, you were, in, uh, you just finished a trial, and ninety-eight uh, percent of it went well, but there was two percent that somehow you could have done better. You focus on that. You uh, then use that small amount to judge yourself in a larger sense about how you are as a lawyer. Exactly. So either you've got experience or you're reading my mind, because that's <laughs> what happened in the first part of my career. I was going to say, unfortunately, it's my personal experience, but I will say I have learned from that. So yeah, no, that's that's been one of my challenges, definitely, is, is looking at my cognitive distortions. Right. And you know, law is um, it's particularly focused in that way, because Law is the only occupation in which you get rewarded for being a pessimist. That's right. Consequently, there's lots of pessimists. Whenever a lawyer says to me, I'm just trying to be reasonable here, what I say is, okay, well, wait, before you go on with anything, I want to tell you, what you're really telling me is, I just want to tell you all the ways that this won't work, mm-hmm. all the things wrong with it, because that's what lawyers are really good at and get paid for. But when judging yourself or looking at your own life, or living life, it's a very, very ineffective way to, to move forward. Speaking of judging, one of the things I learned, Derek, you, you probably will know this, but I learned this from a client in AA a few years ago. This wasn't a lawyer, but uh, he said to me that it's really uh, dangerous and ultimately unhealthy to judge uh, your insides from someone else's outside. Exactly. That uh, you you don't know what other people are. You can judge that they own a Jaguar or they've got this big house or it's a six-figure 
salary somewhere. You don't know what their story is. Yep. All you can see is the outside. Yep. And law, this gets to the stigma, which is the big, huge problem in law. It's very externally focused, and anything that doesn't quite measure up gets stigmatized or looked down on. And, you know, I just sort of, again, anecdotally, I've had this happen more than once. You know, a young lawyer comes in who's just distraught because they've made a mistake and they couldn't figure something out or whatever it is. You know, they're just, they know they have to quit practicing law because they can't do it. I've had that happen more than more than once, but I've had it happen a couple of times where they're the main part, partner above them, feeding them work and supervising them. It's a friend of mine. And they've said things like, well, that person's never made a mistake. I said, can you imagine that person's never made a mistake? Well, they've never made a mistake. I'm like, I don't say that they have, but I I know they've made mistakes. And and one of the two cases I'm thinking about, pretty significant mistake, but one particularly, and got over it. But part of how stigma happens is nobody talks about the mistakes or being in the glue. They try to put up the facade. And and by the way, both of these people, uh, lawyers, are very good, probably thriving lawyers who weren't like putting up a facade. It was quite a few years later and they're not going to tell everybody, hey, I made made a mistake. But there could be more sharing about our yes, our well, you, you and I both have studied, been in personal growth and studied stuff, and we know that it's not a bad thing; it's a growth thing. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, and that's and that's why I had mentioned earlier we we call we're calling this podcast "Thriving Lawyers" because we feel that community is an essential piece to lawyers improving their well-being, and lawyers tend to isolate themselves. I just read an article yesterday that law and medicine are the loneliest professions, according to this one article and research they were doing. That combination of perfectionism and lack of tolerance for mistakes and then difficulty being vulnerable by sharing that with someone else, that's a that's a really dangerous combination. I have, if I can share too, anecdotally, um, a client come in with, with an issue and at work and he was very stressed out at work, and it was coming out sideways in how he was interacting with his colleagues. And um, I asked him just in the first session, so have you shared this with your wife? Does your wife know how much you're struggling? And he said, no, he hadn't, which is not unusual, I I don't believe. And um, my first homework assignment with him was to tell your wife. Mm -hmm. Share as much as you want. I'm not saying you have to share every detail, but share with your wife you know, some of what you shared with me, or all, however you want to do it. And the next appointment, he came in and said we had a long drive to somewhere and talked to her about it. And he felt better. It wasn't a magic bullet, but he recognized how important that was for him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it's well, that's kind of one of the keys of 12-step recovery, is sharing the load with people. That's mm-hmm. one of the main reasons it's, it's really effective. And, you know, it's interesting because law is such an adversarial basis and competition rather than collaboration. So the number of lawyers or the the areas of law in which there's any meaningful collaboration even is pretty small. And often I sort of say I look at a bigger law firm or any size law firm and if there's 100 lawyers, there's probably 50 separate practices under one roof. If 
my uh, partner on this in real time and on this podcast, uh, Chris Osborne, were here, he would, he would, I could imagine him jumping in right now because he is practicing collaborative law in the States. Not as much as he wants to because it's not, it's not in all areas, but he very much strongly believes in working from a collaborative place rather than an adversarial place. Yep. And basically, at least in BC, but most places, most of the collaborative law, to the degree it's done, it's done in the context of family law. Right. And right. not surprisingly, a big percentage of it done by female. female right. Right. Um, years ago, yeah. I prepared, a, I thought, either a, a course at the law school or even a one-day seminar on preventive law, which is essentially collaborative law across the board, not just in family law. Because when I was in business in Oregon, it was a sort of startup biotech kind of stuff. And said if I had like a, a dollar for every time somebody said, don't let the lawyer lawyer this to death, I'd be rich. Right. They, they were looking at, lawyers were looking at it from the adversarial point of view as opposed to collaborative. And I think right. it would be great for a lot of lawyers' well-being to be able to be in that more collaborative, let's, let's, let's make the best out of whatever it is. I think in terms of meaning and, and just in terms of emotional health, being in that area would would be really healthy for people, and that's one of the systemic changes that have to look at. Because yeah, that's a good. That's actually a good segue into some of the remaining time I want to spend with you, Derek, uh, to focus on the systemic uh-huh. changes. And and before I do, I wanted to give, and this is an older book, but I wanted to give a shout out uh, to a book and an author and see if you've heard of it. Have you heard of the book Transforming Practices? Yeah, by Stephen Kiva. 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 Yeah. E V A. Yeah. The sub. The subtitle is "Finding Joy and Satisfaction in the Legal Life." This was written, boy, I think maybe nineties, late nineties, early two thousands. Yeah, it was I written. Forget exactly. In the early days when I was starting here, it. Uh, That's right. It was. Books. It was around. Yeah, it was definitely. Uh, looks like nineteen ninety nine. Yeah. It was definitely on the front end of this wave. Yeah. And he he sadly has died. Uh, really, Kiva? I believe so. Yeah, I, I think we had so. to present at Colab one time. That's so I just want to put that book out there, and also uh, Kim Wright. Have you ever heard heard of her? Oh there? yeah, yeah, yeah. We okay, have, so you have know, for too. exchanges and stuff. But okay, she does a lot of. She's, she's I guess in Australia now, but she's all over. It's hard to keep track where Kim. Where Kim is at any given moment, but she's been also on the front end of this. I did a program with her years ago in Charlotte, North Carolina, and she's written a couple of books that, before we're done, I'll put the titles out for folks around this topic. But what, what would you say, Derek, as far as regarding the billable hours piece, and I, I know you feel strongly about this because I've heard you talk about this before. So what do you do instead of that? And is anybody doing that? Well, it's, uh, this, this may be a good time coming up because I think the practice of law is going to have to change. You know, I think there's the future. People are all talking about the future of law and artificial intelligence and stuff. And what we used to do, quite honestly, I hate to say this, you know, back, a little, back in the day, but right. we built by a, wasn't, we kept track of time, you know, an issue. 
But you'd look at what can the client afford? What does the case warrant involved? How complex is it? How much of my and then how much of my time? So it was a more of a almost I'll call it talking about connection. It was more of a you're connected to your client and it's more relational. It isn't as efficient and you can't bill as much, I don't think, because well maybe you can. Some can. And the reason I, I say this is because I I hear way too often young lawyers coming in and they're never there nobody comes in and says, Wow, that was a really good trial you did or boy that document you did or that closing, you just did a great job. They come in and say, you know, you're great, you know, your billable hours are really good and you're doing great. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they're even being ta- talked about in terms of how much they're billing. And so that's one of the things firms could do differently is uh, how are they valuing their lawyers? Yeah. And what are the messages they're sending and even the meta messages they're sending to their lawyers? Yeah. Okay. What else are they doing? Some of the law firms in Vancouver, but elsewhere, what else are they doing that that are making a difference, starting to change because these individual lawyers can do all they want with individual changes, which will be helpful for them at, at at some level. But then if they go into this firm that's unhealthy, right, and they're still going to struggle. Yeah. So what what kind of things the law firms you see are are helping? There are a few of the basically sort of spin-off smaller firms, people who got tired and decided to start their own firm, where they're working on much more collaborative kind of office space where they and not even necessarily collaborating that much on the work, but they talk to each other, have meetings around what's going on. The billing is not stressed as much now, or it's much more, what kind of work, you know, people are talking, what kind of work are you doing? Are you actually helping the client? And, you know, more in relationships with the client, where that's what really important. And they emphasize the relationship with the client. And they, right. and so they, they do things like get feedback, not just get feedback and forms from the client, but talk to the client, include the client in, in more of the what's going on. Right. Um, and, okay. and so there's more satisfaction in it. One of the things that law firms do, by and large, if I can work with the lawyer to get up the courage to do it, most law firms will work with a lawyer to help them do the kind of work or work the kind of hours or do it the way uh, that, that most suits them, if that yeah. makes sense. So instead of putting them, okay, no, you have to work 85 hours a week, they'll go, okay, yeah, you can work 40 hours a week. And we and we do hear, and not to, I hate putting anybody in this, in this box, So, but to hear millennials as an example, but, but younger lawyers, are and younger people generally are that's what they're demanding they're oh, yeah. demanding flexibility yeah. in their work and again generalizing here they don't want work to be all that there is either no. in their life yeah no and uh, yeah, the interesting thing about the yeah I'll call it the under 30s uh-huh and I've got it both and I see it in lawyers but also in some of the other areas I am they will work really hard Mm-hmm. However, only for stuff that has some meaning to them. Yes, and I've I've heard that as well. Yeah. So, and yeah. you know, the downside is they're not particularly willing to, in quotation marks, pay the price. Mm-hmm. 
uh, you know, which I, I'm a boomer and we kind of thought, okay, <laughs> there, there is a period of time where you got to, you don't just walk in right in charge. Right. Uh, right. Learn right, and stuff. Uh, so with any upside thing, there's a downside. We talk about stress at work and well-being and thriving. What do you notice regarding stress for lawyers in marginalized groups? In other words, for, for women. And I know women, more more women are graduating out of law schools now and we're getting more and more female lawyers. But still, I think it's still more, there are more challenges there for female lawyers than uh, male lawyers. So females and uh, lawyers of color, <clears throat> indigenous lawyers, uh, uh, gay lawyers who are LBGTQ communities. Are, are you noticing increased stress for those groups? Yes. Now, the indigenous in particular, but some of the yeah, some of the other, not necessarily marginalized, but ethnic groups, they get an extra stressor, stressor from their own culture to conform to their own culture in a way almost not, I call it the high poppy, high poppy syndrome. Don't get too big. You, you owe us. You gotta give to us. So there's that. You know, with women too, I, you know, I think in many respects, maybe changing, but often women are harder on other women. Mm-hmm. It's not the same kind of thing as often among men where, I mean, that can happen too, of course, but we're, we're all part of a club. So we help each other. And, mm-hmm. and I will give a shout out to the women of my year, 19, class 1974. There were only 13 women graduated, but wow. almost all of them went on to be very successful. You know, the treasurer of the law society, several of the you know, Supreme Court of Appeal. And one of the things that is how they stuck together. And they still, after all these years, have, you know, they talked to each other. And I talked to a couple of them many years ago. And they said, yeah, we would meet. I don't know whether it was once a week or once a month. They'd sort of meet regularly. Uh, for lunch mm-hmm. and stuff, and they would share. Yes. Oh, you know, there's a job here, and there's a job. so they did a collegial thing where they helped each other. We met a group of lawyers in in California who met regularly. They even they even had a name for their group. They called themselves Legal Eagles. Oh yeah, and uh, they meet regularly, and they also promise each other that none of us are going to make important decisions regarding work. It could have been personally too, but specifically regarding work until we talked with our our we talked with the group. So they were there, and they said that they there wouldn't be certainly a week would go by where they wouldn't reach out to each other, and probably more than once. Yeah. So that that's something I think that could be an important tool for lawyers to help them thrive more to build that sense of community. Absolutely. Um, and you know that most of the successful lawyers I know have been actively involved with groups like the Canadian Bar Association, the Bar Association. Local and county bars, many of them have been benchers and stuff, but there's there's a natural support of just right. being there talking about stuff. The lawyer assistance program in your community, wherever that may be, is, is such a, a wonderful resource. And uh, many lawyers, I think, are still under the mistaken impression that that's only for those who are struggling with drug or substance or, or alcohol issues. And that's that's so not the case that it can be anywhere from having a problem in your relationship to stress to losing your job to grief and loss. So many things that really day-to-day living issues that you go to your LAP for. Right. 
Yeah, you know, like I said before, I was here. It was it was essentially an AA outreach, and a lot right. of LAP right. started that way. But not, right. all of us now are comprehensive, and in fact, substance use is relatively small portion. Right. And yeah, and and we do have groups, and we do have other kinds of things that help lawyers get together. Yeah, I do a grief group for lawyers, lawyers who are experiencing grief and loss related to death, but other losses as well, job loss, for example, right. or divorce. Let me uh, throw out the names of those two books I mentioned Kim Wright wrote. She wrote Lawyers as Peacemakers, yeah. Practicing Holistic Problem-Solving Law. That was back in 2011, it looks like here. At least that's when the paperback came out. And then I think her most recent book is Lawyers as Changemakers, yeah. the Global Integrative Law Movement. I actually have a little, a teeny little blurb in that book. Very okay. emphasis on teeny. Uh, um, yeah, that was published. It looks like around 2017. So yeah, it's three years ago. I got it's very expensive. I got it. I did oh, get a copy. It's quite huh. big and dense. Really good book, though. I I, I have a copy somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> One last thing, Derek. What about those lawyers who say it's important to find meaning in your work? What about those lawyers who just have decided, you know, I just can't find meaning in being a lawyer? Uh, what, what do those folks do? And I know that, I know this is a longer answer than, you know, three or four minutes that I'm giving you, but what, what do you recommend for those folks? Well, some serious time of introspection to usually like we do it here at LAP, help them or some kind of a coach to help them get very clear on what their strengths, weaknesses, interests, what would give them meaning. So they're not just leaving. I'm a big fan of um, don't run away from where you're at, but move to something. And, and you know, it's a bit of it's quite a process to get there often. Most most ones who come into me with that kind of want a one-word one answer. Oh, okay, why don't you go be a teacher? Oh, okay. I, cause, and I say that because I know more than a few lawyers who've gone into teaching. It's a natural and, and they love it, but they've gone into all sorts of things. I will tell you one of my techniques when somebody comes in, I hate being a lawyer about it. I will talk to them about law and well, very frequently they love the law. And they love stuff that just either their anxiety, depression, or they're just locked and fixated on something and they just they need a break. They need a way to open their mind, but they clearly love the law and they can find value in it. And then there's some who just, it's just time to change. And one of the things I do is work with people to try to get them to go, they are, you're a person with a legal education and a skill set that's very transferable. You are not a lawyer. We're not lawyers. We are, we have that skill set. There's a lot of transferable skills. And right. this is one thing that I think might be more in Canada than the U.S., because of our articling system and because it took longer to get to be JDs than LLBs, lawyers tend to think of themselves as lawyers as opposed to people that can write or do legal research or people that can interview clients or people that can cross-examine or people that can write documents or people that can think in a certain way. They think, no, I'm a lawyer. Like I went into a biotech business as an executive and my skills were highly transferable. There's a book, actually, that gentleman who I know very well, who actually coached me when I, when I left the law, he's a former lawyer, 
Larry Richard. Oh yeah, PhD in uh, in counseling. He has written a book that's been around for a good while now called "What Can You Do with a Law Degree: Lawyer's Guide to Career Satisfaction Inside, Outside, and Around the Law." Yeah. So that could be a uh, a good resource. This is all the time we have for for now. But yeah, I want to thank you, Derek. Thank you so much for for joining us. Yeah. Did you want to just give any site or any other social media or any other address that you want to want the audience to know about? Well, we are at www.latbc.com, and we have quite a few resources where on that website for people to go and look at. We've got bibliographies. We're just we're building it over time too. You know, there's so many different. I hate to leave out any kind of sure. stuff. You know, there, there is another one that I remember right back at the beginning. When you mentioned Stephen Kiva, I start, thought of Susan Dykoff, D-A-I-C-O-F-F, and one of her books is Lawyer Know Thyself, and she did a lot of analysis and studying and stuff. And of course, any of the research and works done by uh, Larry Krieger and Kenneth Sheldon, uh, yes. they've done a bunch of work. That's more yeah, Larry Krieger was was forefront of this, wasn't he? Yeah, and yeah, and then he's done. Happiness for lawyer, lawyer happiness research, and again, lawyer well-being research, really what it is. And he really, again, comes to the conclusion that it's intrinsic motivation as opposed to extrinsic motivation is what leads to well-being or happiness. And uh, it's it's very good research. So that's, and just to say, uh, so everyone was clear, that's L-A-P is in Paul, yeah. B-C, yeah, dot com. That's Derek's website. So thank you, Derek, and thanks for everyone for listening. Uh, we hope, I hope that this podcast has gotten you thinking about new ways to approach being a, a thriving lawyer, having a happy life, and also maybe validated some of the things you're already doing. So thanks again, and we'll uh, look back for you in our next podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Thriving Lawyers Podcast. We love hearing from our loyal listeners, so please feel free to email us any questions, comments, suggested topics, or guest recommendations at the following address, feedback at thrivinglawyerspodcast.com. The Thriving Lawyers Podcast is brought to you by Real-Time Creative Learning Experiences, a national provider of continuing legal education and professional development programs that leave participants engaged, encouraged, and equipped to pursue meaningful and sustainable change in their practices, their lives, and the organizations they work in. And by Osborne Conflict Resolution, your experienced guides through the uncharted terrain of business and family law disputes based out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Thriving Lawyers Podcast.